It's the Pittsburgh Oddcast. Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh, and with me as always is the founder of Odd Pittsburgh, John Chowkowski. Well, hello everybody. Today I wanted to bring you a few additional tales. Uh, more trilogy of tales, I guess you could say, because there that's it's the truth. There's more stories like this than um you know biographies or other well actually no that's not true i guess you know i could just do every episode about a person every episode about things that have happened and and while we could talk a lot um even in depth about some of these stories i kind of want to share like we always do um just a few shorter tales uh so we can fit more in and of course the first thing I want to talk about is something that's most likely on everyone's minds, and that is a pandemic or an epidemic. Well, we're in pandemic. We are in pandemic mode. Mode now. Now, that's exactly what happened in Pittsburgh in 1918. So we're now we're talking about the, of course, the Spanish flu, um, and uh, and how it affected a city. And when you hear this story, now this this is what I'm going to read you is. Um, Straight from the newspapers, um, just the month of October, just the month of October. That's important to, to mention here because these numbers will hopefully not scare you, but will give you an idea about what a real epidemic looks like within a city, uh, especially in a time period where medicine was not really in its infancy. However, I guess cleanliness <laughs> um, yeah. definitely was in its infancy. Um, and most people did not have showers, you know, at this time period, let alone, uh, readily available soap at every single public place, you know? Um, so you can see there is a difference, uh, whereas you were almost, uh, kind of, it was almost against you, uh, back this time period than it is today. But I will begin with the very first death caused by the Spanish flu here in Pittsburgh. And that was on October 4th. 1918, Charles Patterson, a 29-year-old resident of Aspinwall, dies in St. Francis Hospital. This was the first known cause of death by solely by the influenza epidemic that would soon encapsulate Pittsburgh. By, so that's October 4th. He was the first person to pass away. October 7th, 284 new cases of the flu were reported in the city. The next day, 453 cases reported. It's like doubling. The day after that, 784 cases reported. Within days, Pittsburgh was gripped with something only seen before in the medieval days of the Black Death. On October 15th, orders were given. So that's October 15th. That was a week, not even a week. Orders were given to close up over 1,400 saloons, 165 movie theaters. We had a lot of movie theaters. Uh, the canceling of all college football games, all sports, a ban on public funerals, and only church services and schools remained open at the discretion of the congregation and their directors. The lack of knowledge on how the flu was transmitted was debated daily in the newspapers, leaving both the public and the medical professionals with unknown ways to prevent it from continuing the spread. Doctors and nurses within days of treating sick patients would soon see themselves sick and themselves on the verge of death's door. So now on that same day, October 15th, 39 people died. 813 new cases were reported. On the 16th, 69 people died. 
The following day, 75 more people died. By the 19th, the flu epidemic reached a new high, 945 new cases with 124 deaths in a single day in the city of Pittsburgh. By October 20th, so this is 15 days from the first person to pass away, the first, one by October 20th, one person was infected every 90 seconds and one died every 15 minutes. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but when the death toll in Pittsburgh was finally tallied in March the following year, the flu had reached 28,112 people within the city, killing 5,316 Pittsburgh citizens. How many again? 5,316. Most deaths, and here's the strange thing, most deaths were from people between the ages of 15 to 39, with 2,994 of those deaths people between the ages of in their 20s. So more people in their 20s were getting this than any older person or infant. Uh, but by the time that this would be done here in North America, it would kill more people than that were killed in World War One, World War Two, the Korean and Vietnam Wars combined. And how long did this take? Do we know? By October is when you first saw. The, now it started uh, a month prior, basically. Um, yeah, the epi- you know when it started spreading everywhere, and it spreaded. Almost the same way that you see uh, the newspapers talking about today. In fact, you look at the newspapers from like newspaper.com and uh, read about you know what was going on in just New York City. Uh, there'll be things like a hundred new cases reported today. Yeah, you know, the next day it would be two hundred known cases. They didn't even really know. They just knew that more people were getting sick, and they started pe- debating in the papers like uh, blaming the subway, you know, for transmitting the, the disease all throughout the city. You know, someone was sick over here in Brooklyn. They took the subway to wherever, and and now everyone's sick. Um, well, if you world, look, world well worldwide, or close, nobody even knows the exact number. But worldwide, it was fifty to one hundred million people were infected with this thing. Yeah, uh, well, that that was that's a pandemic right there. Yeah, um, which is an epidemic affects a number of people that are exposed, and when it becomes worldwide, it becomes a pandemic, which is basically as yes. serious as you can get with the disease that is it is super serious and the the difference between what was happening then versus what's happening now is that the well i mean it is very similar you have to think about in uh, in some terms uh however it um we can prevent mass casualties like like that occurred in 1918 as long as you act now well i think that's what the public is trying to do and what officials are trying to do is mm-hmm. a lot of people will say well you know i'm healthy and if i get it it's not going to be a big deal but if you go to visit your grandmother in an old folks home and you don't know that you have it right um you can infect a lot of people the whole and folks hope so yeah. while it may seem like an overreaction i think that if you're constantly cleaning and keeping yourself as healthy as possible even without getting coronavirus maybe you prevent yourself from getting the flu or a cold mm-hmm. that's those are less people that go to the hospital. That's right. And That's right. more beds for people that are actually sick. Yeah. And while the Spanish flu, I, I think, in severity of, of mortality rates is a lot more serious than this COVID-19, it still is, you know, I think we've learned from our past. You Look what happened. Well, you, yeah, you heard that. You know, I mean, 
every day. Well, uh, they're doubling the numbers. Just you know? looking at, at Italy, which has yeah. basically quarantined the entire country. On mm-hmm. February 28th or 29th, they only had 821 cases, and as of March 11th, they had over 12,000, nearly 12,500 cases. There you go. Uh, well, in what less than pre- 11 days. Yeah, what they're predicting is that eventually it's going to be like the common flu, you know, uh, that basically it's everywhere and that you, you know, it will take its own course and kind of, you know, you will work up an immunity towards it. And that, that like, like, like the, but, you know. Well, the only issue <laughs> look is at that the, there's no, there's no <clears throat> cure right now. Right, there's no right. vaccine you can get for Corona where you can get a flu vaccine. Yeah, not yet. You know, uh, same thing happens, you know, when you're exposed to a rare disease like smallpox. Uh, which was, there was plenty of epidemics and pandemics with smallpox. Same thing with uh, cholera epidemics. Uh, yeah, mumps. Ones, you know, yeah. And uh, even here in Pittsburgh, I mean, uh, of course, uh, Pittsburgh, to tie it back to the history, <laughs> um, and maybe it's something I don't think I, we even mentioned, but there there is a case of this, a disease, being used as a weapon. And the first known instance, which you today would call biological warfare yeah, germ warfare all right uh was here in pittsburgh oh really <laughs> yeah and uh that involved a thing called the siege of fort pitt so the siege of fort pitt was kind of like um a revenge uh of some of the native americans who were previously kicked out of here with different uh battles like the battle of fort duquesne and the battle on grants hill all these epic battle names you know i love them you know the battle of the wilderness <laughs> you know all sound good, but the siege of Fort Pitt, uh, where basically they were going to come and destroy what was left of Pittsburgh, uh, the Native Americans, for spite, of course, you know, and 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 all. I don't see why they wouldn't um, <laughs> after the way we've treated them. However, uh, orders were given through the government, and there's documented evidence of this now with, with letters that have been published in our state archives, uh, demanding that the captain of Fort Pitt, on purpose give uh, smallpox infected blankets to the Native Americans as a peace treaty or like a peace offering. And most historians would agree. If you just type in the word biological warfare in Google and look at the history, you'll see they're going to mention the siege of Fort Pitt and this incident because this incident might be single-handedly responsible for the death of millions of Native Americans. Millions. Because you could see, I mean, just with this flu epidemic that we had in uh, 1918, 50 to 100 million people, <laughs> you know, that's what it affected. The Black Death, the bubonic plague. But a, a third of Europe. That was about the same. 75 million to 100 million is the estimate for how many people were actually passed away from the Black Death. So put that in perspective. <laughs> um, it's... Uh, Record keeping. There's so many people. There were there. There was nowhere to bury them. There, you know, they were. Uh, you couldn't have funerals. Um, it, it was bad news. But we survived. We are here talking, right? Not all of Pittsburgh was destroyed. Five thousand people did pass away. Um, however, you know, the population of the city was in the million by that time. So we did survive. Uh, but it took a while. It took uh, from October is when it first started happening. Uh, about till March of the following year was when it finally kind of went away. So it, it was a prolonged, you know, four-month, five-month ordeal, but it eventually did just go away. Um, crazy, huh? <laughs> so that kind of gives you a little perspective about how um, something like that uh, can unite a city, but also um, 
uh, kind of tear it apart, you know, from the inside out. Well, what happened at Fort Pitt? Was it the smallpox blankets? Smallpox affected blankets, yeah. Captain Daniel Euler, I think was his name, uh, the captain who was in charge of actually, like, administering these blankets. They had a... The smallpox was a common infection uh, for American or, or Europeans, I guess, um, and they even had a smallpox hospital, as weird as that sounds, uh, down at downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, and there were blankets and things that were used in that hospital that they gave to the people uh, who have never been exposed to some kind of disease, anything like this. Uh, so the same thing you could say for any one of these other diseases. These are things we've never been exposed to. These aren't like measles. You know, or uh, something like that. These are, uh, it's a brand new thing. That's why it's scary. Uh, same thing was like with H1N1 or swine flu, you know, or uh, all these other things that have happened in the past. But nothing as fast or spreading. Um, and we, it is historic, you know, what's going on right now uh, with all the closures and everything like that. Because people, if you look at the papers and how they handled it back then, that's even here in Pittsburgh, they closed 1,400 movie theaters, right, yeah. and, and all that stuff. So they started taking precautions. By doing that, they were able to prevent it from getting even worse. Um, but it is strange that it really affected mainly people between the ages of 20 and 29. I always thought it was like all the old people. Yeah. You know, well, little babies or something. Or, back then, if you were 20 or 29, you were kind of already an old person, right? <laughs> right. Middle age. Yeah, because middle age, <laughs> 23. So <laughs> not to keep on the uh, disaster theme, but uh, have you ever uh, gone up the incline and uh, and kind of like looked back down and looked down that hill and be like, wow. It's like, you mean I'm only being held up here by just like this one cable? Just this one cable that's holding us all up here. But what happens if it snaps? What happens? Well, that did happen. And I'm going to tell you a story that happened in 1909. Uh, and that it was about the St. Clair Incline, which was in Pittsburgh Southside, right by 18th Street, kind of. Um, it was 3.30 in the morning on April 6, 1909, several hours before the first gray streaks of dawn would slip over the hills lining the Monongahela River. Pittsburgh had been built around the three rivers and had only used its early inclines to transport its workers to and from their homes on the hills at their working places in the river valleys. The night shift of the D.O. Cunningham Glass Company at Jane and 22nd Streets on the south side, just finished its turn. The workers scattered, many of them heading for the St. Clair Incline, which lifted them up the steep hillside to St. Clair Borough, where they lived. Many of the passengers and people, employees of the glass company, were 15, 16-year-old boys. Uh, because this is prior, this is still 1909, yeah. but that's what you did. You know, you went out and worked 15 years old. Uh, on most mornings, there would be more than 50 people, uh, men and boys, on the incline. But on this particular uh, on this particular day, they were, they were delayed and missed the first incline trip. On schedule, the creaky old incline began its descent. Men and boys grasped their empty lunch pails and either dreamed of the night's sleep that lay ahead or simply stared blankly into the darkness of the night. As the car headed towards the depot at the top of the hill, it appeared to proceed normally though several passengers later said that the car seemed to have been moving unusually fast. And then, with a sickening jolt, the incline hit the cement abutment at the top of the hill and rebounded away from the platform, careening back down the steep grade at a rapid and ever-increasing rate of speed. Screams and cries of help filled the air. Two boys, Arthur Miller, 17, and Albert Klingenberger, 16, jumped from the railway car 
into the darkness of a hillside. Both were later found dead from their injuries. Frank Bredel, 17, also jumped, but he made his decision earlier before the cars achieved its maximum speed. Although he received many cuts and bruises, he was not severely injured. One of the other passengers, Herman Widershift, was reported to be the hero of the day. Other riders said that when the car started down the incline out of control, he yelled to everyone, lie down to cushion the force of the collision. When he was interviewed by the papers, he said, I can't remember what I did, but I hope that they reported it is true because it was the right thing to do. You know that when you are speeding to certain death with only a few seconds left to live, you can't remember what you did. I was in an accident on the same incline several years ago, but last night was about the most thrilling experience of my life. I'm getting my nerve back just a little bit today, but I'm not denying that it was all taken out of me last night. Later, it was found that neither the cable on the incline had broken, but both cables had been torn loose from their drums. This was criti- crucial to understanding the accident because if that had not happened, the lower car would have begun its counterbalancing upwards and they would have served as a brake on the descent of the upper car. Instead, the upper car careened wildly down the incline plane. So how about that? And the story goes on because there's there's more to that story and the response and the, uh, but the the kind of story that nobody ever died on the incline, <laughs> uh, which read, read if you just search the newspapers in the 1970s or 80s or even more recently in the 2000s, uh, you're gonna see no stories about people falling or dying on the incline, <laughs> but it did happen. Whether that was People kind of hitching a ride on the back of the incline and just falling off and tumbling yeah. into the hillside, which happened all the time. Well, that's a very dangerous hill. It's, <laughs> it I mean, sure you, every couple of years you hear about somebody yeah. up on Mount Washington and they start going down the hill and then there's a, a drop-off and they're gone. And you find out, you know, somebody from Missouri was visiting. And <laughs> right. And, you know, gone, you know, over Grandview Avenue. But, um, yeah, uh, but on the actual cable car, because that's the nice thing about inclines is that even though it looks like it's unsturdy or unsafe, it actually is completely safe as long as everything is going okay. Well, I'm sure they have safety measures. And the safety measure is down. the other car. So how the inclines work is they're they're connected through that drum that you see, like at the Duquesne incline. And because they're counterbalanced, if one were to snap or go down, the other one would kind of weigh it out and they would just stop, just slow, right, yeah. you know, slow each other down. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily go careening down into the valley. Where this was different is that the cable came off the drum and there was nothing for it to, to stop it. And uh, but, uh, that was pretty bad. And uh, I wanted to mention that because a lot of people don't believe that people ever were hurt, and especially when you see these old videos or old photos, and you see that the only thing that was holding people in the cars at the Duquesne Incline or the Mon Incline was just like a rope. <laughs> they used to allow horses on there and yeah. stuff like that too. So it was like, you know, I don't know, horses didn't just, you know, allow the sound, make them freak out and then just jump over the hill. I don't Who knows? I'm sure it happened, and uh, but yeah, that surprised me because I was always a, uh, um, I always thought it was the safest thing in the world, even the mining incline. And sure enough, there, if you look hard enough, you'll find that people there, you know, passed away too. So, last story I'm going to leave you with, and this is all the, the that last story, the incline story, and this next one here I'm going to read you are from this great book. It's out of print. It's called Only in Pittsburgh. And it's by S. Trevor Hadley. And it has uh, things on here like the Great Pittsburgh Poetry Hoax. Interesting, right? <laughs> um, has stories in here about John Brashear, 
Billy Sunday, which we'll probably talk about soon someday. Who's or, Billy Sunday? Just give us a quick preview. Billy Sunday was this radical preacher uh, who played baseball for the Pittsburgh Pirates for, I think, uh, seven or eight seasons. Uh, an incredible name. That was his real name, Billy Sunday. <laughs> Sounds kind of like it could be a uh, like a Western outlaw, too, <laughs> or yeah. a preacher. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but that, that he was uh, known as one of the most charismatic preachers uh, to have ever come around, especially here in Pittsburgh, but not just preaching here in Pittsburgh. He became a national celebrity. I mean, this guy traveled the, the, the country giving these sermons, and people reported in the papers like they've never seen anything like it before, like this man could capture an audience in ways that people have yet to see. So um, and, and there is a really good story about him in here and his involvement while he was here in Pittsburgh and how it kind of led to his uh, eventual uh, confirmation as a preacher. The stories about the Pittsburgh Canal are in here. Of course, uh, the Forgotten Islands uh, and, uh, and, and many other amazing stories. But so You'd probably have to go on eBay to find a copy. You will have to go on eBay to find a copy. You might be able to find one on Amazon if you look hard enough, but it's not been scanned. or It's from the 1980s again. 1980s seems like a great time for uh, Pittsburgh history books. Uh, so many different ones are being written. In fact, this S. Trevor Hadley was an older man at the time, and he has since passed away because I looked him up to see. I mean, he would be a cool guest, you yeah. know? So, um, but now we just have to go on his words. But he talked about a uh, and compiled uh, little stories like this, almost like Odd Pittsburgh. Um, but the one I wanted to kind of share with you for the end of this episode was um, what did people think the future of Pittsburgh was going to look like or be like. So think about yourself in 1920s or 1870s or pick any date. And based upon your experience of that day, let's take 1928, for example. So from 1928, the year before the stock market, how would you imagine Pittsburgh to be 100 years in the future? Yeah. Well, I, you know, we've talked about this before. I listen to a lot of old time radio Mm -hmm. and one of my favorite subjects is sci-fi. Nice. And uh, there's a show called X minus one and Dimension X, and they're, um, you know, post-apocalyptic type stories for the most part. But they'll be, you know, let's take you to the year 1987, and there's <laughs> right. flying cars and yeah. blah blah blah. So I love that. I, I love seeing uh, just the idea like... of what you thought was going to happen. Right. I mean, right. if you think about that today, it still is. You know, 20 years from now, there'll be flying cars. Right. Right. I mean, like, uh, just like the Terminator. What was it? August 6, 1996. I still remember that Judgment Day. Yeah. Terminator I mean, 2. And <laughs> right? Back to the Future 2 is already passed. <laughs> yeah, how weird is that? 2015. That's the weirdest one, really. Um, although they did get many things right, which are, which is fantastic. Yeah, the Cubs won the World Series. I they think it was did. a year they later. They did. They still yet to in really invest in holographic technology or self-lazing shoes. And Pepsi still looks the same. Yes. And still not free. <laughs> so, but anyways, uh, how did Pittsburgh, how do people think Pittsburgh was going to look? 50 years, 100 years in the future from 1928. Well, somebody wrote that answer down. And I'm going to read you some of this man's predictions. His name was A.L. Humphrey, and he was invited uh, to give a series of lectures for the Pittsburgh Chamber of Commerce. And uh, one of the lectures uh, that he gave was called Pittsburgh 50 Years Hence. And Mr. Humphrey was the president of Westinghouse Air Brake Company and the American Brake Company. In addition, he was a member and board of the directors of several other well-known Pittsburgh corporations. At any rate, 
He took his crystal ball in hand and tried to predict what Pittsburgh would be like 50 years from 1928. It's fascinating to look at his predictions, to square them against the Pittsburgh that did occur in the 1980s. So we're talking about what this man thought it was going to be like in 1988. So 1988 Pittsburgh. He first predicted that there would be one municipal government for all of Allegheny County. Mr. Humphrey considered this prediction to be a sure one. Legislation had been introduced in the state capitol in Harrisburg to do just that. Pittsburgh and Allegheny County were to become one metropolitan city in the same manner that has happened to Philadelphia and Philadelphia County. He gloried at the fact that such a merger would eliminate waste and encourage efficient coordination of services in the 124 independent municipalities. Seems as certain as anything human can be, he said. He talked about the prestige that would come from a city of 1.5 million people, new trade, new industry, new cultural advantages. He pointed out how community improvements of countywide proportions could be accomplished. It was hard to fault his reasoning at the time, but his ability to prophesize was a little bit suspect. What would his reaction be today if he could return to his beloved city and see how that, almost 100 years later now, no progress in that direction has occurred. Today, we still face that same issue, how you have a county and a city government in the same building. <laughs> and, that, well, and that's still been every couple of years that, that is brought up. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's been taken seriously, but it has been considered. You know, it'll be asked every couple of years, the mayor or the county executive, why don't we just do what Philadelphia does yeah. and become... More people in your city means more resources uh, from the government, the main government. So that does make a little bit of sense. His second prophecy was that Pittsburgh would, would become the center of the entire nation's water transportation facilities. He said that Pittsburgh was at the head of the world's greatest waterway system and that it was inevitable that Pittsburgh would experience enormous expansion of trade and would become the nation's greatest center of water transportation. Unfortunately, that development never happened, of course. Dams in the Ohio River helped flood control, but the massive development of the nation's railroads and the rise of the great trucking industry pushed river transportation into history. The third prophecy was closely related to the second. Mr. Humphrey predicted that the Ohio River and the Lake Erie Canal would become a reality, making Pittsburgh a lake port. That's interesting. Hmm. The canal, of course, was never built. Pittsburgh did not become a great lake port. And the water tonnage continues to work its way through the St. Lawrence Seaway to the Atlantic Ocean instead. Mr. Humphrey anticipated that all of Pittsburgh railroads would be electrified and that the use of coal and steam locomotives would be truly eliminated within just a few years. Steam locomotives did finally become obsolete, but it took a long, long time for that to happen. The power which was utilized to drive them was not usually electricity, even in the 1980s. His fifth prophecy was that 50 years from 1928 would find Pittsburgh in the midst of the airplane era. He felt sure that every able-bodied man would be licensed to fly a plane and that the principal means of communicating to and from one's employment would be from airplane. <laughs> that would be great. Can you imagine? I'd be right there. I'm just looking for a spot to land. You know? Yeah, all of us have John Travolta's uh, <laughs> runway Backyard or whatever. Yeah, you keep my uh, captain hat in the back seat. Um, the difficulty of landing the planes would be solved by new planes, which could land in small areas and would prove to be amazingly economical to operate. So like flying cars, kind of. Exactly like flying cars. And, and you know, it, it, what's, uh, what's funny about that, um, 
that concept is, uh, you know, we've talked about that Gustav Whitehead and the first in flight here in Pittsburgh. Um, the man who was behind part of this international research team that I got involved with, uh, a man from originally from England, but then he lived in Australia and then he was living in Germany when he contacted me, um, was hired by Boeing to literally invent a flying car. And according to him and video that exists on the internet uh, through, through Berlin and his type of air, little small little airplane, he did it. <laughs> so when was this? This was actually about ten years ago, uh, is when he first came, had this idea. Now the problem was it's too expensive to kind of mass produce it at the moment. So um, his version would cost something like a quarter million dollars to produce this tiny small airplane, which was exactly basically what this guy was describing in the book, which was very easy. Anybody could basically drive it like a car, and if you just knew how to drive, you could fly this airplane. And you can land it pretty easily uh, with just some basic training. Well, if Tesla's not involved in it, it's probably not economically sound yet right. still. That's right. That's right. So the technology is kind of there. It's just that it's, uh, yeah, it's just not financially feasible, and we'd have to change our inner system, and PennDOT would block the airways anyways. You know? I mean, if I was Mark Cuban, <laughs> I'd definitely be like, yes, throw half a million or a million there. Yeah, that's true. Uh, one last thing he says uh, was that, he flatly stated the city of Pittsburgh would have a population of over 2 million people by 1970. The 1980 census gives the Allegheny population of 1.4 million. Okay, so it was close. Um, the figures are quite reasonable if the city had merged with Allegheny County, of course. Instead, we selfishly pursued our separate ways of identities and created innumerable confusions and overlappings of service, which continue to this day. Oh, yeah. Um Currently, the population of the city of Pittsburgh, 350,000 people. So a city that was built for a million, two million, at one time had two million people living in it, for real, has dwindled down to numbers that were equal to about 1910, 1920 era uh, of Pittsburgh. So the best thing about that, which I'm kind of happy about in a weird way, like, yes, I love to promote Pittsburgh, and of course you want people to move here and enjoy it as well but um it's also nice to have all these resources and not really be that crowded uh and uh the, and to think that these gigantic institutions these huge museums or schools you know were built here for all of us for all these people and now that those people don't live here and and we're stuck with this kind of like 300,000 people uh we can kind of really enjoy these it's a really cool opportunity to enjoy these sources uh and these these things that were left over by the gilded age uh that we can now experience as a small city we're a small town uh we might look big but it's uh, it, and on, at least on paper it's a small town well yeah but you also have Allegheny County with over right. a million people right and why people while people might not live in the city you know, as far as Cranberry, which is not technically Allegheny County, you still consider that kind of Pittsburgh. So it's right. The right. people are here. Yeah, they're just not. They are. They've moved north or south or east or west, outside of the city. And uh, but it is interesting to think that just downtown and or you know the the city city part of Pittsburgh, uh, that did have that popu- that high of a population at one time, and, and you could <laughs> with that type of a high population. You have horrible things happening, like extreme wealth and inequality, um, slums, 
all over the place. Uh, people, you know, not being able to, uh, uh, to you know, have a, some kind of safe living condition or even go to school because there's just so many people, so crowded, so uh, difficult to maneuver, um, and the resources just were being taken up by everybody. Pittsburgh is a really interesting town to look at that type of a history, uh, population history, and then how we reacted to immigration. You know, all of our ancestors were immigrants, all of them, right? Mine being Polish and Slovakian and on my, at least my dad's side, uh, Italian on my mom's. And, and all of them came here. All of them were persecuted. All of them. It doesn't matter what nationality you were. It's just because you happen to be here. Um, and, uh, the people who were here 50 years before that, uh, you know, think that they had dibs or whatever they called shotgun, yeah. and, you know, and, uh, you can't work here or live here. And the same thing goes on today. Uh, but it's the, uh, it's interesting to see how people reacted to the same type of problem. You have this influx, you know, all of a sudden the population of Pittsburgh is 500,000. Well, 10 years later, all of a sudden it's doubled. Right. And all those resources are being used up. All the jobs are, are now taken. Um, so how, how did Pittsburghers react to that massive wave of immigration like the 1880s to the 1920s? And, and that is an interesting story we probably will talk about. Um, and I and I will leave you with the very last, very last predictions. OK. Um, and this was that same 50 years from that date, somebody in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette decided to write. Uh, a little follow-up, yeah, which is what I'm reading here. Uh, but what the it would be like in the year 2000. Ooh. The year 2000. The year 2000. <laughs> Among the many prophecies, great and small, were the following. The major growth of a city will occur in Oakland. At least one new hotel and several new office towers will be built in the Golden Triangle. There will be a computer in every household. Fax machines will replace the telephone as the major communication tool. Public school teachers will become highly paid professionals with top salaries of $90,000 a year. This was in the year 2000, of course. Um, you know, I don't know if they make that today. Uh, kitchens and homes will be designed as entertainment centers. Most food will be sh shelf-stable and require no refrigeration. Interesting. Debit cards will automatically deduct the cost of food products and supermarkets from your bank account. It's getting close to actually happening. Yeah, and Amazon stores and other yeah. cities. Your family car will be designed to become your breakfast nook of the 21st century. That one's a little weird, <laughs> especially with all the potholes we got around here. Uh, we will have a woman president in the year 2000. Almost. 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 Uh, not in 2000. Professional sports will have global conferences. Magnetic lav levitation will be the next high-tech industry. It's, uh, to be fair, they it's tried. Around, but they tried. It's uh, pretty expensive. It is expensive, and, and they did try here in Pittsburgh with that, um, with the monorail. Yeah, maglev. Yeah, I mean, think about uh, the coolest thing about that story with the monorail kind of in being invented here and first set up here was that Walt Disney himself visited Pittsburgh to come see that monorail in action to see if it was something that he would want to use in Walt Disney World. Well, that was pretty cool. And the last, movie theaters will have roomier seating, automated concession stands, wider menus of real food, and satellite systems which will, which will deliver movies straight from the studio to the theaters. It's, I mean, today, not in 2000, but today it's gone digital. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, the prophecies, seats are bigger. That's true. But uh, there, you company. still have people check cashing you out and everything. 
Yeah, yeah, they do. They do. And uh, prophecies are interesting. I, um, When I was a kid at my grade school, there was this book called The Omni Future Omnimac, right? It was published in 1982. Uh, you know, you can see the copyright date right there in the book. And in that book, they predicted every single year they had the best futurists uh, known to man. This is Omni Magazine. It was an offshoot of that magazine, which is like a science magazine. But they um, predicted yearly what they think might happen. And in 1996, they predicted 100% accuracy. <laughs> like on that list I'm reading, there's a list in that. Everything on that list happened in 1996, the year they said it was going to happen. Wow. <laughs> now, they, they were way off on some things. Like um, technology. they didn't expect technology to be so advanced. They thought, you know, of course, people will have video games or something by the 1990s, but maybe just, uh, you know, handheld. They said handheld video games or on your watch or uh, and things like that. And they talked about the future of fabrics and technology like uh, with clothing and how people would kind of the leisure suit of yesteryear would now become sweatpants. <laughs> the fancy sweatpants society. Well, I think <laughs> we'll people just, are trying to pull that off. Yeah, including me. And uh, but that is the truth. But that was predicted in this book. And, uh, and they actually, when it starts to get the years to 2000, they start skipping by 10 years. They tell you every 10 years what they expect to see happen based upon uh, all, everything that's come before. So when you talk about Pittsburgh history or history, uh, there's nobody better to ask about the future than a historian. Because we've seen how these patterns of the past and these things that have already kind of occurred and how they handled it. Or, and you can see what they did wrong. You see what they did right. And you just try to make it better in the future. Yeah. When I give speeches, uh, that's what I tell the kids. I go, um, you know, understand that these people are Pittsburghers just like you and me. And that, you know, you can be one of these people. You can strive to do that. And if you do that, uh, you can change the world and, and, and for, the, for the better. And all you got to do is study the past. Uh, history doesn't maybe not always repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And... Uh, so it's important to look for those uh, rhythmic beats <laughs> within uh, history and how we can learn and progress. That includes talking about the flu. Uh, that includes talking about incline disasters, I guess, and, of course, predictions based upon at least what we could uh, uh, see or predict from then. So if you have another tale and a story that you want to share, and uh, we have some guests lined up. We were supposed to have one today, a pretty cool one, but... And we will be having that because uh, I talked to them and uh, somebody from the WWE, so World Wrestling Entertainment. And uh, wrestling, Andy, has been around for at least since the 1850s here in Pittsburgh. So, I mean, think about that. Is there a macho man of the 1850s? Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, tune in later to find out, and we will find, and we will share some of these stories with you. But also, um, we have, uh, we'll be doing another episode on some uh, – Female history-driven shows, uh, probably in uh, the month of March here, and uh, among many, many other tales. So, I want to thank you for listening, and without further ado, Andy, that's it for Piss. Wash your hands. <laughs>